Samson. I call this setting the stage. We're diving into the story of Samson, uh, a man who becomes superior in strength but struggles spiritually. Uh, and as we look into his life, this is the last uh, in the book of Judges. This is the last specific biography of a judge, but he is by no means the last judge, uh, which would have been Samuel. Uh, even so, Samuel and Samson overlap almost completely, except for Samson dies before Samuel. Uh, but they fulfill very distinct different roles. Uh, Samuel is going to be the one that leads in the victory over the Philistines at the Battle of Mizpah around 1055 BC. And that's about five years before King Saul uh, becomes, comes on the scene or becomes the king. Uh, whereas Samson is going to protect Israel in the years from the Battle of Aphek, which is 20 years prior, up until the Battle of Mizpah. The Battle of Aphek is important. If you're reading in Samuel, you, you might know about this. You have Eli's sons. Uh, they go into battle. They bring the ark. This is when the ark gets captured. Uh, actually, Shiloh gets destroyed at this time. And it's the midpoint. It's a 20-year mark midpoint of the oppression that the Philistines bring. And what's interesting is that battle, which takes place in 1075, so 1055 is where they break the rule of the Philistines. 1075 BC is when you're watching the Philistines basically establish themselves. At that point, it is obvious that no one can stop the Philistines, that, that they can just run through Israelite territory at will. They can do whatever they want. And this is where Samson comes into play because Samson becomes the persistent distraction or he becomes their focus. And what that does is for 20 years, it limits what the Philistines could do with their advantage. No one can stop them. And we'll talk a little bit about what's there. But God sends Samson to be this force that takes their attention away. Now, the first time we heard of the Philistines goes all the way back to the beginning part of the book of Judges, which is Shamgar. And he comes along as a lone warrior. He kills 600 Philistines. And we understand we don't know a lot from the story, but likely that stifled any advance that they were going to make at that time. We're going to watch Samson. And back when I talked about Shamgar, Samson's going to function as a judge in that same way. So if you want to mirror actually with somebody else, Shamgar mirrors what Samson does. The difference is their spiritual life. Uh, we don't know as much about Shamgar. Uh, we know quite a bit about Samson and where he struggles. Now, a lot has changed for the Philistines since the time of Shamgar. And the main advantage for them is their ability to work with iron. And so as you look through history, but also as what it says there, they're able to smelt iron. And the Philistines were smart enough not to share that information with anyone else. And so you're a Philistine town. You remember they're on the southern coast of Israel uh, on, that, on that side near Judah coming on up into Dan, where Dan was supposed to be on the bottom and where Ephraim would be. And so they're down there and they learn or gain the ability, they think from the Hittites, to work with iron. And it's a skill that they don't share with the Israelites. Even during Paul, uh, Saul's time as king, the Israelites would have to go to the Philistines to get their plow sharpened and things like that because they didn't know how to work with it. And it gave them one very military advantage. And that's if you took an Israelite sword and you went hand to hand against the Philistine sword and it was a brute force contact, the Philistine sword was such that it could cut through an Israelite sword. 
And so I liken it to this. It's like having a, a, a muzzle loader and someone else has a lever action rifle. The advantage is there that you are crippled by this. And so they have this very distinct ability. And then they have a military advantage that would be very hard to overcome. And so we come now to Samson. And what is he going to accomplish? And the whole story begins with a flashback to the previous degradation before the Ammonites. And so understand this, Ammonite oppression, we just walked through Jephthah 18 years, and now we're just rewinding all the way back again to the start of that oppression, which would be across the Jordan. Now we're focusing in on what the Philistines did. And here God reminds us in Scripture that Israel still is doing evil and being punished for it. And so it reads, And the children of Israel did evil again. And that word therefore again in Hebrew means still. They're still doing evil. We're talking about the same evil. It's just taking place in a different portion of the country. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years, which is the longest range of oppression. And if you read through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and to the kings, you recognize that a lot of the kings do fight Philistines. Paul, uh, Saul fights them. David fights them. And so this is a people group that maintains some presence where they're at. But God has a divine plan for his people and their protection. And it begins with a very noble calling. I want to look at the rest of chapter 13, 2 through 23. So it says that there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. By the way, normally a Nazarite vow was for a year or 18 months. It was something you did yourself. And here we recognize that God is coming to her and saying, from birth, This will be a special individual, and this is unique uh, to certain characters in Scripture that they're called from birth in this way. It says, Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God, very terrible. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told he me his name. But he said unto me, Behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, to the day of his death. And, and I do want to highlight this. Manoah's wife is a woman of common sense and practicality. She says to her husband, look, we're going to have a kid. It's going to be used mightily by God. I didn't bother asking his name, but we got what we need. Uh, Manoah's not happy with that. So Manoah entreated the Lord and said, oh my Lord, let the man of God, which thou didst send, come again unto us and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. And God hearkened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And the woman made haste and ran and showed her husband and said unto him, Behold, the man hath appeared unto me that came unto me the other day. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said unto him, Art thou the man that spakest unto the woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child? And how shall we do unto him? And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, of all that I said unto the woman, let her beware. She may not eat of anything that cometh of the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. 
All that I commanded her, let her observe. I love this part because God gives no extra instruction at all. And what that is, take away, listen to your wife and stop. Some kidding. That's not what it is, but figured I'd throw that out there. And so it goes on. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, I pray thee, let us detain thee until we shall have made ready a kid for thee. And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, though thou detain me, I will not eat of thy bread. And if thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, what is thy name? that when the sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why ask thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? And that word in Hebrew is wonderful. So it's translated secret. It means wonderful or beyond compare, unsayable. These are all hints that this is a theophany. This is Jesus Christ here in the Old Testament. So Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered upon a rock unto the Lord, and the angel did wondrously. And Manoah and his wife looked on, for it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. But the angel of the Lord did now more appear to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. And his wife, again, the pragmatic common sense lady, but his wife said unto him, if the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands. Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would as at this time have told us such things as these. And again, she brings that practical side to understanding what's taking place. But here we encounter an interesting in Samson's calling, we actually encounter Samson's parents and we get a little idea of who they are. We know where they're from. They're from Zorah, located right above the home territory of the Philistines. The Philistines are on the south coast side, seaside. They've been there for centuries. The Danites, Zorah, is right above that. Timnah, which is going to come into play in this story, first part of Samson's life, is only four miles away. It's a Philistine town, and they live four miles from that town. So they are right on the edge of Philistine territory. That's their physical location. And just understand what that means. As the Philistines get more powerful, as they move north, they march right through their territory. Now understand also, when you live next to a people, your relationship with them is maybe a little easier or it's easier for you to engage with them. And that might be a little bit why Samson falls so quickly uh, with looking at a daughter of the Philistines because they would have been interacting more often with them. I do want us to notice that this is a devout couple. You see this in their response. What did Manoah do? I know I was picking on him a little bit for asking God for more instructions, but that tells us something about him. Here's a man that wants to do what God's called him to do. He wants to do exactly what God says to do. And we see the wife who is ready to obey. She's, she's practical, but she goes to her husband and says, we're going to have a baby. What does she give? The instructions that she needs to do right now. I can no longer partake of wine and certain things because I need to live as a Nazarite because this will be a Nazarite from the womb, from birth. And so we don't even want to taint the baby while it's in the womb. And just as a side note to help you understand when God believed life begins, he would not have been asking her to not eat certain things if he didn't think life began 
at conception. And so just get a grip of where that is. These are hints through all of Scripture that will tell us how we address our culture and some of the lies they like to tell. So God obviously points out, highlights a little bit there, that he wants her to do something before the baby is even conceived. And then she will not taint his blood and his life and he'll be born serving them. They are a devout couple, and we see that how they respond to the prediction, the desire to do things the way God wants, their appropriate reverence and awe. I do a pick on Manoah, but when he realizes he was encountering God, he recognizes that he should be dead. He's not this arrogant man that says, well, good, I got to see God. I feel like I deserve that. That's not what he's saying, but instead is, is pointing out this. And so we watch them, and as she approaches the wife, who was barren, that she cannot have a child, that was a, a high stigma in the society. It was, it was a hor- horrible thing to overcome for her. He says, you're going to be barren, but then he says, you're going to be uh, given a child. You will have a baby. And, and understand this, there's a couple things about the call. He's called for the duration of life. The angel of the Lord, this is a theophany, approaches the wife of Manoah and says that the child will have to be set apart as a Nazarite for all of his life, from birth until death. He was called to this, I think, because he's about to be a living miracle. Every day Samson's alive, and it's going to come in his late teens or 20s. Divine strength is going to come upon him, and he's going to live with divine strength. It's going to be a miracle that's every day he's going to have strength that's not human And so here we see that God is asking them to be set apart in a way that is obvious. They don't cut their hair. They eat different things. They they act in a different way. And this would have told everyone, this person's been set apart. Because he's going to be a daily miracle in the life of Israel, walking around and accomplishing those things. She's obviously instructed to forego the restricted items, just to tell you to the extent that God is looking at total consecration which highlights something else. He's called for the duration of life to serve all of his time, but he's also called for the all of life. He was not there to serve for a moment. He wasn't there to serve on the weekends. He wasn't there to serve when he felt like it. But instead, as I mentioned before, it's total consecration. It is the duration of his life, and it was everything that life entailed. He was supposed to be set apart for him. Part of the Nazarite requirement was there to help him fulfill that responsibility, to hopefully remind him to remain humble. We know from his story that he does not, but it was there to help him remain humble, to use God's giftedness for God's glory and not his own selfish ambitions, which we watch Samson do. Samson struggles with life. Um, I put as a side note because I can never resist it. Uh, about Manoah's wife again, don't miss what she teaches us. She was no less reverent than her husband. Uh, She was no less devout than her husband, but recognize how practical she was. She sees God giving instruction, and he's getting all emotional. We're going to die. And it's his wife who comes along and says, well, if God was going to kill us, he surely wouldn't have given us this promise. He surely wouldn't give us all these instructions so that we can execute what God wants. And just getting an idea of what's taking place. However, I do want to highlight uh, his response to having seen God is the appropriate fear. It's the a correct reverence that would take place. But there's nothing like a little bit of common sense 
uh, to calm him down. And I put the extra word godly common sense uh, that she employs. Uh, There's a really simple takeaway from Samson's calling. It's a big chapter designed to, to build a framework. And we'll talk a little bit in the next chapter about it. We're seeing who his parents are. We're seeing how they structured life, how they were a godly couple, that they wanted to serve the Lord, that they were diligent. But there's a real clean takeaway from Samson's calling, and it's this. His calling was not part-time. And that's worth noting. His calling's not part-time. And I'm going to apply it now to us. As God's children now, in the age of grace, in the age of the church, neither is our calling. We don't have the right to live the Christian life part-time. As we engage with what Samson is called to do, we're prodded to understand that our calling as believers is for the duration of life, and it is for the all of life. Samson is going to be this huge warning for us. He is blessed with unbelievable strength, divine strength, and yet his spiritual life is in shambles. It is destroyed. We have been blessed with amazing things in our Christian life, and too often our spiritual life is in shambles. I want to highlight this. He was not called to a part-time calling, and neither are we. Well, things unfold as God said, and it says, And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtuel. We see that Samson grew, and in his late teens or early 20s, The Lord gave him divine strength. And this is what's interesting, that early on he seems to handle biblically. It looks like just by the casual statement of he would show the strength between Zorah and Eshtual, that he would use his strength, that it would be obvious, it would come out, and everything is still functioning as it should. But sadly, that doesn't last too long. Because what we start seeing is a self-centered servant. Now, I mentioned 13, and we worked through all of 13, and it's worth touching on it again when you read through it, to understand that Samson's parents were godly parents. They were spiritually aligned with what God desired from his people. And I say that because Samson comes from a strong spiritual foundation. He had a great framework from which he could have built his life. But that's not what we're going to see from him. Instead, we're going to see him pulled into the world and its priorities. Let's look at uh, 14. Take a look at 14 verses 1 through 4. And it said, And Samson went down to Timnath, or Timnah, and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. Very nice son there. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. And what we're hearing And that last phrase is that the battle of Aphek has taken place. 
when it says they have dominion, we're 20 years into the oppression. So it's not that they're oppressing Israel, it's that they now have dominion. We have seen the end of that battle. The ark, or, uh, the altar's been taken, the ark has been taken, they, they, uh, Eli's sons are dead. Eli is working in Shiloh, Shiloh's been destroyed, Eli has died. He's leaned back on his chair when he finds out, and he's dead. Who is on the other side or up right in that northern region, slightly above where Samson is? Samuel's there. He's been at the temple. He's grown up. He's had the Lord speak to him as a child. This is all taking place at the same time. Samson, though, is prodded into action. And what's interesting is we haven't heard him hit the Philistines yet, and we see God working here. We don't want to miss God's sovereignty. And he's moved into action, though... The motivation is his self-interest, and this is what he shows as a self-centered servant. I want to highlight what he's done wrong, and then at the end, I just want to note something. God used it for his purposes. God accomplished what he needed to do, even though Samson chased the world. So what is the first step of this self-serving servant of God? I put it down, worldly curiosity. Samson went looking in the world for what he wanted. He went to Timnah, and he's looking around and saying, what does the world have to offer? Now, there's commentators speculate on why he went to Timnah for the first time. Why did he end up there? And some of them think he went there to see how he could engage the Philistines or what he could do. And I think we're maybe giving him more credit than he deserves. He used his strength in Israel in in a godly way. He hasn't done anything against the Philistines at this moment. And I think it's indicative of his character that he went to Timnah to see what's going on. What does the world have to offer? And from that curiosity, Samson takes action. What does he do? He wanted what he saw. I see a lady that I like, and I want her to be my wife. And I want you to understand something. When they used the word uncircumcised Philistine, it was an insult to who she was, but it wasn't trying to be ugly. It was an insult in that it was a descriptive word. She was a pagan. And you might think, oh man, shouldn't he marry her and then she could get saved and worship? That's not what's happening. She is a pagan because she's decided to be pagan. This is not Ruth who comes to faith, who is a believer. This is a daughter of the Philistines, uncircumcised Philistines. This is a pagan, not a foreigner, but someone who does not worship God. She is not a believer in Yahweh, which is evident by the wedding that she has and the life she has planned. Uh, The marriage that he is proposing was the type of marriage where she would stay in her father's home. We talked about these types. Gideon married Abimelech's mother, because I don't have a name, Abimelech's mom, and they had Abimelech, but he would have grown up in Shechem. From there, he would visit her And the word they use sometimes is concubine. It's a second-tier wife. But there is an arrangement in in this society at this time where he could have a wife that would stay with her family and he would stay with his. And I made a little note. Though acceptable in their culture, it actually breaks God's design for marriage, which is to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. It's a recipe for disaster. We've seen it with Gideon. This is not going to turn out well. And actually, when we get to chapter 15 next week, we're going to see how dangerous this becomes. But regardless of any cultural acceptability, we find that Samson moves 
from worldly curiosity to worldly connection. Now, when he shares the decision with his parents, they immediately try to redirect his life and his focus. They want to move him from this worldly decision to considering a godly one. And then Samson displays something that's interesting. It's a quiet, rebellious disregard for their godly advice. They say, what in the world? Are there not women in Israel, godly women that you can marry? Why would you go to a pagan? Why would you pursue someone who doesn't believe? Does he answer their question? No. He just says to them, give me what I want. And what I want you to see is from worldly curiosity and then connection, we come to him overlooking counsel. One commentator notes this, it should have given him pause to reflect on what he intended to do, but he was too self-willed to care. What we see from Samson, and I use the word quietly rebellious, is he just didn't care what other people thought. Uh, More importantly, he didn't care what God wanted. Samson blows past any biblical reasoning. He's numbed how this breaks God's law to the reality that this action was the beginning of the disaster of his life. But it doesn't stop him because he was deciding life on shallow criteria. And I want us to see a pattern in his life that comes out here. What happens when you become a self-serving servant, self-centered servant? Well, you're going to have worldly curiosity, which will result in a worldly connection. You're going to overlook counsel, God's word, and godly parents because your life is built on a shallow criteria. This is how he answers his parents. Get her, for she pleaseth me well. Worded another way, in another translation, it says, she looks good to me. This is what I want. You have biblical reasons why I shouldn't do this? I don't care. Because I like what I see. I want this. This is what I want for my life. So let's remove it from a person. And we do that, right? We look at life and say, well, that's what God wants. I don't care. I want that. That's what he's falling into. And the criteria of life is shallow. He made the choice that was right in his eyes. He cared nothing for what would have been right in God's eyes. God's law says, do not marry her. You do not marry a pagan. You do not marry someone who is outside of the the believing community. You don't do this. And he says, I don't care. And you think, well, maybe God should have called down from heaven. God did through his parents and said, don't do this. And what does he say? I don't care. I don't care what you say. I don't care what God wants, and I don't care what godly parents want. I'm going to blow right past it. And Samson is a poignant warning against self-centered Christianity. It is far too easy to engage our worldly curiosity, to ignore godly counsel, and to base our decisions on what makes us feel good. <laughs> I was talking with the teens this morning. We were touching on the life of Job. And we talked about how he eschewed evil or he turned from evil. And I touched on this. Turning from evil is not having worldly curiosity. It's not being curious about it. It's not thinking it's okay to flirt with the world. It's not trying to get as close to the line as we can. But the problem is with self-centered Christianity, we do get as close as we can. What feels good to me? We make our decision based on what gives us the right vibe or what makes us feel warm and fuzzy. And I've heard a thousand of these and we've all used them, right? Well, this feels right to me. (coughs) When were you the standard on what's right and what's wrong? But we all do it. We all tend to justify it. That's self-centered Christianity. 
So as we walk through the life of Samson, and we're going to be in Samson next week as well, I want you to keep these questions in mind and review them a little bit. Do I have a worldly curiosity? Ask yourself that. Examine your life. Do I listen to godly counsel or just find people to tell me what I want to hear? Do I base my decisions on my emotions, my feelings, my experiences, my wants, or do I check everything in light of God's word and the godly people he has placed around me? How are we responding? Samson is a warning. This is what self-centered servants look like. And I want to remind you, he's called from birth to serve God as a Nazarite with hair that's never been cut. He's not drinking wine. He has all these restrictions that set him apart. He has divine strength. He has to know it comes on him. God gives him the strength. It's not like he's lifting weights and he's like, wow, man, I'm getting, I'm getting stronger over time. It's not over time. He knows that this is not his strength. He becomes presumptuous with it. He starts taking it for granted in his life and we see the downfall of that. But the thing is, he knew Yet he was a self-centered servant, so worldly curiosity and connection followed by overlooked counsel and life based on a shallow criteria. God, though, lets us see his sovereign hand in all that transpires. Why is verse 4 is, is fascinating? They're trying to change Samson, and God is just using what Samson is already doing to engage him with the Philistines. In no way is it a, is it a, a stamp of approval on what he's doing. It's just that Samson will serve God's purposes— and so God says, I'm going to use this to make there be a conflict with Samson and the Philistines. Samson's not godly, nor is he a God-honoring individual, but God works it for his purpose and begins to make Samson a thorn in the Philistine side. And keep that in mind. Samson's role as a judge was always to be a lone warrior. It was always to be the guy that basically kept a lid on the advantage that the Philistines had. The Philistines should have overrun Israel in a fell swoop. They got very distracted with a guy named Samson, who was gifted by God and created such conflict and tension that he became what they thought about. Now, what unfolds next in the story is what I call a brief aside, a part of the story that frames what's going to take place later on. So look at 14, 5 through 9. This is the lion and the honey and it's going to build a framework for a riddle, he says, at his wedding. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnah and came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion roared against him. And by the way, you understand later on, he's walking by himself. That's another attribute of Samson. He's randomly, they're going to the same place at the same time, and yet he wanders off by himself and then reconnects with his, his parents. And behold, a young lion roared against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid. And he had nothing goat, and he had nothing in his hand. But he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. In other words, I saw her, I liked her, I talked with her, I liked her. This is very shallow, very quick response. And after a time, he returned to take her, and he returned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And you have to understand, something dies in a dry, hot climate. It becomes mummified. And so in this mummified dead lion that uh, was ripped apart, not just killed, but split open, uh, there's honey and bees swarming. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother. And he gave them and they did eat. But he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. This is a backdrop that's critical to what takes place at the wedding but also gives us a glimpse at how powerful Samson is. It says he ripped the lion open. 
uh, by basically grabbing its hind legs and just, it just split it open. The same word in Hebrew is used for when the priest would offer a bird and they would rip their wings off. So as easy as it is for a normal human to rip the wings off of a bird and offer it to God is how easily it was for Samson to take a lion and rip it open. Now you split it open in the back like that and you think, what is the head doing? What is this? I mean, this, the strength and the, the resistance was unbelievable. He wanders off, you'll note, on his own a lot. It's a four-mile walk. And somehow or the other, he's not with his parents. He's off on his own. And you think, well, he's an independent guy. Well, if you have divine strength, don't you think you should stay with your parents and protect him? But he's off on his own all the time. He gets into uh, seeing the honey. He finds the honey. And who here has ever gone into a honey beehive and come out unscathed? This guy just reaches in and grabs honey. A lot of people say, oh, he touched a dead body. Not necessarily. Uh, because he didn't have to touch the body to get to the honey. And two, a Nazarite was not to touch a human dead body. An animal dead body didn't tie in necessarily. But he didn't have to even touch the body. But he, he reached into an active beehive and took the honey away, eating it. And, and he gives it to his parents. And, and we think nothing of it because we have all the candies in the world and processed sugar. But if you go back to the ancient days, there is no processed sugar. There is nothing as sweet as honey. You imagine if someone here, and I'm going to lose the crowd right now, think of your favorite pie or cake. And just think you're walking along and you want just a sugar rush. Well, that's what he gave his parents. And everyone's happy and we had a, a great time. And it plays a part, though, in his wedding. And the wedding here gives us a glance at Samson's debilitating weakness that comes up. And by the way, it's not just women. Uh, it's what... Uh, They're the active part in displaying his weakness. But we're going to look at his debilitating weakness. If you look at 14, 10 through 20. So his father went down unto the woman and Samson made there a feast. So he's in Timnah, he's making a feast. For so used the young men to do. That's what you're supposed to do. And it came to pass when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. And this should tell you that this is a Philistine wedding. This is not a Hebrew wedding. Samson didn't come with friends from Zorah to be with him. He shows up in Timnah and puts on a pagan feast and they send him 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you. If you can certainly declare it unto me, declare it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I'll give you 30 sheets and 30 changes of garment. In other words, I'll give you 30 linen undergarments and 30 outer garments that cost a lot of money. But if you cannot declare it to me, then you'll give me 30 sheets and 30 change of garments. And they said unto him, put forth thy riddle that we may hear it. And he said unto them, out of the eater came forth meat and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, entice thy husband that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee in thy father's house with fire. That's nice. Tell us what's going on or we'll murder you in a very horrific way. And so she starts, of course, uh, petitioning him. And it says, have you called us to take that we have? Is it not so? In other words, have you called us here to be his companion so we can lose money? 
And he goes on, and she and Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou doest but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it my father nor my mother. And shall I tell it thee? Just to let you know, he's not leaving father and mother and cleaving unto his wife. She's going to stay there. He's going to go live with his parents still. And their relationship is a type of marriage accepted in culture, but what breaks God's law. And she wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted, and it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her, because she lay sore upon him, and she told the riddle to the children of her people. And the men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said unto them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you had not found out my riddle, which was, I know exactly what you did. You manipulated and coerced my wife to find out the answer. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them and took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them, which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled. It means his nostrils were flaring. He is furious. And he went up to his father's house. In other words, the marriage was not finished. It wasn't consummated. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend. What happens? He arrives at the drinking party that he has to pay for. He's given attendance from the town. This is a Philistine wedding, and there's no Hebrews that we, we know of. He has no friends showing up. His parents are there because of what they have to do culturally. But this is obviously not okay with what's going on in Israel. He wastes no time in challenging them with the riddle, which, by the way, was a popular game in Israel, and it involved a substantial gamble. This was no dollar bet that he made. This was going to really hurt or bankrupt somebody if they couldn't pay for it, the 30 changes of garments. However, if they didn't do it, if they didn't finish it, they had to give him 30 changes of clothes. If he doesn't, if they get it right, he has to go out and, and put clothing on them. Of course, they go to his wife, they threaten her and her family. She nags Samson, a tactic that will work on him again later in his life to his complete destruction. He caves. And then she tells the attendants, and they at the last minute give the answer, and then he knows what's taking place, and he goes with the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, a, a special endowment of power and strength, and must have been speed because he goes 24 miles away to Ashkelon, kills 30 people, takes their clothing, and comes back 24 miles and pays his debt. He's furious with his wife and heads back to the family home. And I want us to understand that the empowering of the Spirit of the Lord, that the distance traveled was significant, but it's not like it took him days to do this because he leaves and then it's like, oh, left an embarrassing situation and she's given to the best man and that's how the chapter ends. The whole wedding process, though, is an exercise in foolishness. And I want us to start getting a grip of Samson here. He displays weak perception. Samson never reads the room well. Ever. He always assumes that people are for him in some way, shape, or form. He has 30 attendants and he gives them a riddle. And let's be honest, would have been something that he should have done with friends, close friends. It's something that Hebrews did. But is this a Hebrew wedding? It's not. This is no friendly wager, by the way. And that comes to the second part of weak perception. He doesn't weigh the repercussions of embarrassing those attendants, those friends those groomsmen, he doesn't weigh the repercussions of the financial strain that he's put on them. He is thinking only of his sport. He's a man of the moment. He's active. He moves. He, he engages. But 
He doesn't recognize also the danger of trusting Philistines. All through his life, they repetitively are deceptive over and over again. If this story didn't set him up to not fail with Delilah later on and to not believe her, then nothing would have. Because it's almost the exact same scenario. They prove to not be fair, to not care for his success. He's the groom, and they're threatening to murder his bride if they don't win the bet. They don't care about him. They have no problem destroying his life. And as we've seen, the situation develops into something unpleasant. And now when pressed, Samson quickly reacts. Now, we look at the Spirit of the Lord empowering him to do this, but when we look at the motive for going to Ashkelon and actually now engaging with the Philistines to be the protector that God's designed, what is his reasons for doing it? I need 30 changes of clothing. Now, it's going to create a little bit of a stir. Out of nowhere, 30 people are murdered. They're stripped of their clothing, and he's gone. The Philistines are going to be thrown into turmoil. Ashkelon is a a capital or principal city. God is going to accomplish what he is going to do with Samson. He's going to protect Israel. He's going to create this distraction. But when you see it from Samson's point of view, he goes and kills 30 strangers to pay a debt. He's so furious, and notice that he has enough integrity to pay his debt, and then he's so furious that he leaves his bride. And I put here, he's naively trusting and reactionary. Samson does not process these decisions. He doesn't make a decision, and he doesn't think past step one. And to, to, to explain this, he's not a chess player. This guy is not thinking three moves down the line. He is a man of the moment. That, that emotional response, that immediate le- reaction that he's going to go, I see a woman, I want her. Give me that woman. I am a man of the moment. I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what the repercussions are. Let me walk in and let me make a riddle because my sport is important to me. I want to have fun. I'm going to do this. This is, what my, this is fun for me. It turns around, manipulated. He goes to Ashkelon. He murders three people, kills them, and he takes their clothing, takes care of it. And he's angry and he leaves and goes on. Yet despite his weak perception and emotional reactions, God is working his plan because Samson is becoming the focal point for the Philistines. He is the problem that must be solved before they can take full advantage of their victories. They may want to advance up in Israelite territory, and we are looking at history from the end. Like we're looking at saying, why do they get distracted with Samson? Why didn't they move faster? Why didn't they take advantage of what they had? But we're not living in the moment. In the moment, just in perspective, 30 people just died and are now naked laying out there, and they have no idea what happened. It's the capital city. They're befuddled. They're a pagan people. They're wondering what God is upset with them, what's taking place, and God is going to use this same wedding to have him destroy crops in an agricultural society, and then they're going to kill his wife anyway, and then he's going to come and repay them for this, and we're going to start this yin and yang, back and forth battle that takes place, and what you see is God orchestrating that the Philistines can't come and crush Israel to dust because God has raised up Samson to keep them occupied for 20 years. He dies right before the battle of Mizpah, where Samuel leads Israel to victory, But I want to kind of look 
at his life in that debilitating weakness and see something for what it is and, and maybe ask some questions for us to process. How biblically perceptive are we? He had weak perception. His perspective was off, and it's because it was very temporal and very emotional. It was very much he saw himself in the wrong. He didn't read the room. He didn't understand this was the enemy. Everyone should like me. I'm Samson. And then do we find that we are emotionally reacting to circumstances? That it's just the moment that we're not, there's no depth to our thinking, which makes sense, right? Shallow criteria for what he wants. He's obviously got a very shallow response. Now, in all of this, I want us to see what Samson's debilitating weakness is. He does what is convenient for him. It's going to be the same thing with Delilah. So here is Samson. I'm not going to doubt that women are somewhat of his weakness, but the the real debilitating component of his weakness was he did what was convenient for him. He removes the immediate irritant. His wife, bride-to-be, is nagging him to death, and he took the shortest path to getting her to be quiet. They give the answer, and he immediately knows. He says without blinking an eye or or stuttering, you've plowed with my heifer, which was somewhat of an insult to her and to them. He knew. He knew when he gave the answer. But what did he want to have happen? I need her to stop talking. I will do what is convenient for me. He always caves for the sake of convenience, proving his self-centeredness displaying his weakness. And that has put a question for us. Does that describe us? Are we weak in the sense that we will take what is convenient for us? We will not evaluate what is right in God's eyes. What is the path? What will, what will the long-term effect of this be? What is the danger? What is the risk? None of that comes into consideration. We don't think about the biblical ramifications of what we do. Samson's weakness is he never thought. He did what was convenient for him. Now, I think he's a fascinating read. Uh, When you go to his life, there's a lot of judges is given to Samson uh, when you think about it, but it's a very sad one. He could have been the true hero, the man set apart from birth distinctively for God, miraculously enabled by God to single-handedly protect Israel until God's time for victory. He could have been the guy that stood in the gap. That's what he was called to do. He's going to stand in that gap. He's going to plug the hole. It's not going to allow the water to rush in. He's going to fix the dam. He's going to make sure that the Philistines can't overrun them. He could have been that man and lived a life that honored God in the way that he served God. He could have been, but he wasn't that hero because despite a noble calling, he was self-serving and spiritually weak. He was enslaved to his convenience and enamored with the world as is depicted by his choices. Now, I want to pause right there before uh, uh, to make sure we understand something. I believe he was a redeemed weak man. We see his prayer at the end of his life asking God for for that redemption, for that opportunity to die with the people that he's going to kill. We see, I don't think he completely disconnected, and that's why I think he speaks so blatantly to the church today, because it's a self-centered Christianity, a self-centered servant, what comes up. Enslaved to convenience, enslaved to what 
we want from the world. We see this world and we have to have it. We have to have that nugget. How can we live without what the world has to offer? This is our justification. That's Samson's justification. And I'm not going to pretend that we have divine strength in the sense of physical strength, but we struggle with his weakness, doing what is convenient. So ask yourself this. Have we overlooked God's noble calling on our lives? We are his children. We are called to serve him. What does Corinthians say? We're to be his ambassadors. We serve his purpose. And then I'm going to say, remind us, noble calling is not a part-time calling. We are not to be part-time Christians. Are we serving him selfishly? Does Samson accomplish God's purpose? He does. Does he seem to use God's giftedness for his gain? Eh, Seems like it. Because he's self-serving, self-centered. And before I go off on Samson, I look at my own life and I start saying, oh, man, I'm self-serving. I'm doing this. This is, this is what we do and are. And then last, do we cater to our debilitating weaknesses? Are we doing what is convenient for us instead of what is right in God's eyes? 